This morning's Old Testament reading um, is found in your bulletin. Let us read this together. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning, groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of The New Testament reading can be found in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Please read with me. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissing them and pouring perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he concealed the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not kiss, give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but... She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're visiting this morning, we are in a study in the gospel according to Luke. Several of you say to me every Sunday morning, different ones, I'm reading Luke. Thank you. 
That is such an encouragement to me. And I hope if you haven't been, that you'll use that. You'll, you'll use this as an encouragement this morning. Uh, if you really want to be blessed on the Lord's Day morning as we go through Luke over you know, the remainder of the year, it will make a huge difference if you just start reading through Luke during the week. It's easy to read through in a week's time. You can read it several times in a week's time. But, you know, it, it would not be a bad thing uh, to confine yourself just to reading Luke in, in your devotion. Uh, when you stop and read the Bible during the day or during the week, just read Luke and just keep reading it, rereading it. And I promise you, to hold me up on this. Tell me if I'm wrong. Let's say you read it and you take a pen and you begin to mark in it. I will tell you, when you're reading through it for the fifth time, you'll mark, you'll still be marking passages that you hadn't seen before. I promise you, you will. That I, I, I've preached through Luke a lot of times. Uh, and every week as I prepare for the, for the message of the week from Luke, I'm marking something that I hadn't marked before, that I hadn't seen before. Do that. Use that. We're in Luke. We're in the seventh chapter. Uh, the last part of the seventh chapter, in fact. Before we look at this passage, let's pray. And ask the Lord who was there uh, that day. In this Pharisee's house. He's here in this house this morning. Let's ask him to teach us. Our Father, we thank you that we can bow our heads as priests for each other this morning. As we look back over this summer, Father, we thank you for how you have blessed us. In the various events of this church, how you blessed our vacation Bible school and how you used the people of this congregation uh, under the, the leadership of Kimberly Abernathy to reach these children, to teach. We thank you for the safety of the Bible school and for the other events, Father, for the junior high and senior high. And there are two different trips to Reform Youth Fellowship. Our Father, we thank you for what you taught them, for the spiritual growth that took place. Again, for the safety. We give you thanks. We don't take that for granted. Now as we prepare, as parents, as, as students, to start a new school year, we pray that in these next few days as we celebrate the last days of freedom from school during the summer we pray that you would prepare us for school our father we ask for our college students that will leave for college soon what a difficult place to stand in our state universities in our different colleges and schools. What a difficult place to stand for Christ, but we pray that you would give our college students from Christ Presbyterian, give them the conviction 
the zeal to stand in their place for Christ. Now, Father, we do pray for Doris Beasley. We pray for Priscilla Turner. We pray for Laura Behrman. Father, you're able to heal and do what medicine cannot. We pray that you would bring healing and bring spiritual strength. We pray that all of us, Father, would live in anticipation for Christ has prepared a place and is preparing a place for us. We pray for each other. We pray that we would not live in fear. That we would not live in fear here. That we would not live in fear. As we face death. Knowing that, Father, we have a better place. Father, give us a true conviction that we can stand before you in eternity and say, who can bring a charge against me for Christ has done? So bless us, we pray. As we open your word now, we pray that we would hear you speak to us. John Sartell is not able to speak so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we've heard you before in this place, Father, and you've changed us. We're not the same people we were. We pray that this morning, once more, we would hear your voice in our hearts for the glory of Christ. Amen. A self-righteous Pharisee and a prostitute. Does anyone have only a few sins to be forgiven? John Bramlett could not talk to individuals without telling them something about Jesus. He would be walking beside someone at the airport, a total stranger, and turn and say, do you know Jesus? He would be purchasing something at the store and ask the clerk, do you know you're a sinner and you need a savior? He was a quintessential evangelist, whether he was speaking to a stranger or a friend, whether he was speaking to an individual or a thousand people. It wasn't always like that with John Bramlett. In fact, if you looked at the first part of his life, you would say he will never say anything like that. You see, being respected meant being tough in North Memphis, Tennessee. That was what was written about him. As a teenager, John Bramlett, it was said, could outdrink, outcuss, outfight any man in Memphis. He was a legend. He only weighed 160 pounds. You guys are playing football. Uh, think about this. I hope Colin's here this morning. If not, be sure he knows. He only weighed, Bramlett only weighed 160 pounds in high school. But you know what position he played? Offensive tackle. He was named All-State and All-American in high school. He earned a starting position on the Memphis, what was then Memphis State football team, was a freshman, and by the time he was a senior, he was second-team All-American. He signed a baseball contract with the, with the St. Louis Cardinals, but was thrown out of professional baseball because of his drugs, drinking, and fighting. And you had to be bad at that time to be thrown out of professional baseball. You know what he did? He built himself up. From 180 pounds 
to 225 pounds and tried out for the Denver Broncos, said, I'll try football now. He made first team as a linebacker and was runner-up to Joe Namath for the league's rookie of the year. During his pro football career, John Matt Bramlett made all pro teams. He went to two pro balls and was named the most valuable player for the New England Patriots in 1970. But he had another name, a name of which he was proud, a name that was a different kind of name. He was named officially the meanest man in football. His life was about drugs, women, and proving himself to be the toughest man alive. John Bull Bramlett was the best at what he did. And what he did was hurt people. He hurt strangers by his own admission. He hurt friends, hurt his wife, he hurt his two sons. And most of all, he hurt himself. And then one night, two men came by his house and told him about Jesus. His life was never the same again. I'll tell you that story because the person in the story before us this morning, one of the people was like John Bramley. Now, my story as a Christian, my story is quite different from John Bramley's. But only different in the drama involved. I knew John Bramlett. I loved to hear him speak. His life was driven by a love for Christ. It seemed like an extreme love. And it cannot be really understood unless you realize that John understood how much had been forgiven. That is the theme in the story before us this morning. Look at the players in this drama that we read with Tyler. Simon the Pharisee is first. Being a Pharisee, he was known for his strict religious and moral life. He was an exact opposite to John Bramlett. He was an exact opposite to this prostitute. He asked Jesus, come to my house for dinner. Now, he did not ask him out of love or out of respect. He did not show any of the usual courtesies he would have extended to other guests that he really wanted to honor. Look at the 44th verse. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, what did Jesus say to him? Do you see this woman? I came to her house. I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. You did not give me a kiss. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon's normal reception for a rabbi would have been to have a servant wash his feet. That would have happened 
when he came in the door. It was normal for a student to kiss the feet of a rabbi. Aren't you glad that's changed? Simon did not give any of those courtesies to Jesus. Simon had asked Jesus to his house because Jesus was the rabbi, the controversial rabbi that was on everyone's lips. He wanted to examine him, to evaluate him, to prove that he wasn't real. We know this because that's what he was busy doing. Look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if, 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 if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That's how he looked at Jesus. You're really not a prophet. If you were, you wouldn't let this woman near you. That brings us to the second player. Probably a prostitute. She's like John Bramley. The text does not name her a prostitute. If you look at verse 37, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, what does that take? Then look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. In other words, the Pharisee says, she shouldn't even be in my house. I would not let that woman touch me. She could have been a tax collector's wife, but the sin seems to be hers, not her husband's. She could have been an adulteress. Some suggest that she was Mary Magdalene, but there's no conclusive evidence. Suffice it to say, this woman had a terrible reputation and in all probability was a prostitute. How did she come to be at that dinner anyway? Well, when a dinner was given by someone of substance for another, and this Pharisee would have been wealthy, such a dinner was held in an open courtyard of the house. The outer doors would have been open so that neighbors could stand around the wall. And listen to the conversation. Jesus had obviously encountered this woman who was outcast in her own town. And treated her with acceptance and grace. She had probably heard him teach. And heard sweet words from God's word. Like she had never heard. Now it was common for guests. For anyone in that day. To lie on his side. To eat. They didn't sit at a table. The feet would be away from a lower table. She had come there for the express purpose of seeing Jesus. Look at verse 37 again. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned Jesus was leaving. That was the key. She didn't learn there was going to be a dinner there. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. In other words, she was coming specifically to see him. Many Jewish women wore a vial of perfume around their necks. If you lived out, if you were outdoors all day, 
and you lived in, in, in that setting, if you had any means at all as a woman, you would have had a vial of perfume around your neck. For obvious reasons. She had come to anoint his feet with this perfume. But then she noticed his feet had not received the customary washing when he entered the house and her tears fell on his feet. She wiped them with her hair. Look at verse 38. As she stood, this is powerful. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. She washed them herself with her hair and anointed his feet with perfume. To us, as we see that, it's powerful. That maybe if we'd have been in that situation as Simon, we would have been embarrassed. As a Pharisee, as a self-righteous man, who worked to show people how righteous he was. This emotional outburst, this woman being there in this emotional outburst, it was most unfitting. She shouldn't even be in his house. Jesus was a total ease. Simon made his evaluation. It was obvious Jesus was not a prophet. If he were, he would not let this woman even touch him. He would know she was a sinner. That's what he said. There it is in verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Now, that's what he's thinking. It's just like he said it out loud. Jesus read his thoughts. He knew what he was thinking. Now, before we look at Jesus' answer to Simon, look back at Simon's opening statement. If this man were a prophet. He would know who was touching him. Simon hit right at the heart of grace. Jesus, that's the point. Jesus did know who was touching him. He knew everything about her. He knew more about her than the Pharisee did. If Jesus had not known, it would not have been grace. I can always go to Jesus. You can always go to Jesus without a mask. Because of grace. I can always go to Jesus without pretense because I know that he knows who's talking to him. He knows my sin. When I ask him to forgive me of my hypocrisy, I'm not informing him of anything he doesn't know. He knows my sin, my hypocrisy, my arrogance, my secret thoughts. Paul Wellman wrote a book titled The Chain. Wellman writes it, there was a fourth temptation. Remember at the beginning of his ministry, there were three temptations. And in looking at that passage, we said there were really many more, even in that chapter. 
They just named three. But he said there was a fourth temptation, and, and, and we'll let it go at that for the sake of this point. Wellman said it took place at the cross. Jesus was in this place of agony, of extreme suffering. Suffering the, the physical crucifixion and suffering the greater unseen judgment of the wrath of God for the sins he carried. And just at the most extreme suffering, Satan came to Jesus and he whispered this temptation. Jesus, they're not worth it. Look at them. They're not worth it. Jesus already knew. That's why he was done. The point was they are not worth it. He knew we were the murderers, the thieves, and the prostitutes. He wasn't on that cross because we deserved it. Jesus knew exactly who was touching him. And we should smile, for it's the heart of the gospel. And then Jesus addressed Simon's postulate. Postulate. You guys that are getting ready to go back to school, you know what a postulate is? It's something accepted as truth or fact and used as a basis for an argument. Hence, what's the truth? If Jesus were a true prophet, he would not allow this foul woman to come near him. He let this woman come near him. So he couldn't be a true prophet. That's Simon's postulate. How did Jesus answer? I love this. You can just see it. Simon is thinking this. He has no clue that Jesus is just like he were speaking to Christ. It's exactly like he said this out loud. That's disturbing, isn't it? What if, what if you had somebody at at your house like that. And you knew that every thought that person would know. You, you would not only have to watch what you said. You would have to watch what you thought. Well, God is with you. And he knows what you're thinking. And so Jesus turned to him and he said, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> Whoa. Two men were in debt. One's debt was ten times the amount of the other. The man to whom the debts were owed forgave both. Which would love him the most, Simon? Simon answered, the one who was forgiven the most. Now question. Answer me. Question. Is the point that the woman really was a greater sinner? And Simon could never love Jesus as much as she, because he did not have that much to forgive. Is that what Jesus was saying? Simon, she loved so much because there's much more to forgive in her life than yours. You know better than that. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus made a remarkable comparison to this scene 
He used a prostitute as a, pro, as a positive example to a Pharisee. He said, Simon the Pharisee, the religious guy, he said, the moral guy, you need to be more like the prostitute. The Pharisee was a religious leader. His neighbors looked to him as their religious and moral example. Jesus looked at the Pharisee and said, it would have been better for you to act like this prostitute did. That was a scandalous statement. Let's put it this way. Listen to me now. Could Simon stand before God and say, this woman is a greater sinner than I am? Could he have said before God, my heart is not as sinful as hers? Could I stand before God and say, God, I'm a sinner, but my sin was not as bad as John Brown's. I used to think that way. Remember I said earlier, my story is different than John Bramlett's. But I will tell you this morning, my sin is just as great. It took as much grace to save me as it did to save John Bramlett. That's what Jesus was saying. You know the irony of it? When Jesus walked out of that house that day, that prostitute was on her way to glory forgiven and the Pharisee was lost and on his way to hell. Wow. Jesus explained, Jesus was saying the prostitute's love was due to her understanding of how much she had been forgiven. It wasn't. It wasn't that the Pharisee lacked the sin. It was that he lacked the understanding that he was such a sinner. The point is that no matter if we grow, grew up in the church as a covenant child or, as, or if we grew up in a brothel, we've all been forgiven. Much. Paul, Paul was the opposite of this prostitute. He was like Simon, the Pharisee. What did Paul say about himself? I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. I was a self-righteous of the self-righteous. And look what he wrote in 1 Timothy 1.15 on your scripture sheet. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Lewis Smeeds authored a book titled Forgive and Forget. His goal in writing the book, one of his goals in writing the book, was to demonstrate how difficult and tough real forgiveness is. I thought I was pretty good at forgiveness until I read his book. It's hard. In one chapter, he tells a story of Simon Weisenthal. It's a true story. Real man. 
Simon Wiesenthal was a Jewish architect. At that time, caught in the claws of Nazi Germany. He was just trying to exist, trying to survive through the Holocaust because he was in a concentration camp in Poland. At that specific place, he had been ordered to clean the rubbish out of a German hospital for wounded soldiers from the Eastern Front. This specific day, a nurse came and jerked him by the arm and forcefully took him to an upstairs ward past rows and rows of wounded soldiers. They stopped beside the bed of a soldier whose head was bandaged. It was an ugly sight. Bloody bandage needed to be changed. The soldier was obviously dying. The bandage would never be changed. He was an SS officer, 22 years old. The soldier reached out literally and snatched Weisenthal's hands because he was afraid he would run. He told Weisenthal that he had to speak to a Jew. And Weisenthal sat beside the bed. And he began his confession. He talked about all the atrocities he had done. And said he had to confess what he had done to a Jew. In order to die in peace. It seems that in a Russian village. They had been ordered to plant gasoline cans in a certain house. They marched several hundred Jewish people into that building. Next, they threw in grenades and set the house afire. They were ordered to shoot any that escaped the fire. The young soldier recalled, and I quote, Behind the window of the second floor, I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothing was afire. By his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, he covered the eyes of the child and jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. We shot. Oh, God, we shot. I shall never forget it. It haunts me. And then he told this Jewish man. He told Simon. I know what I've told you is terrible. I've longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness from him. I know that I'm asking too much. But without your forgiveness, I cannot die in peace. Simon Wiesenthal wrote, silence, silence. Here were two strangers all by themselves caught in a crisis of forgiveness. A member of the super race begged to be forgiven by a member of the condemned race. Wiesenthal said, I stood up. I looked at his folded hands. At last I made up my mind and without a word. I left the room. Wiesenthal refused to forgive him. Smeeds asked the question of the reader. What would you have done? He was trying to convey how tough real forgiveness is. How heinous transgression against each other. And against God can be. As hard as forgiveness would have been in that case. 
Think what the response of the German soldier would have been if Weisenthal would have forgiven him. He would have wept. He would have kissed that Jewish man's hands. It's a powerful story, isn't it? I can identify with that German soldier. A Jew sits by my bed. His name is Jesus. The list of my sins against him is endless. The list of my sins is heinous. The angels would look upon my sins with the same horror that we felt when we heard the confession of the SS officer. I assure you that the angels in glory look at our sins as being just as heinous. But there's a difference between Weisenthal and Jesus. Jesus looks at me and the depth of my sin. He knows every sin. The horrific nature of my sin. And yet he looks at me. And he says, John, your sins are forgiven. He said that at great cost because he takes my hands and I look at his hands and they're nail scarred. He suffered a hell I cannot imagine because of my sin. You see, how could I not wash his feet with my tears? How can I not anoint his feet with perfume? People, the more you realize the greatness of your sin, the greatness of the debt, the more you realize it, the more you'll love him. Amen. Our hymn is most fitting. How deep the Father's love for us.